0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Muscoota, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So Mercy's Door, this is like 159 passages, like sentences, right? So I'm not going to preach it left to right one sentence at a time like I normally do. Instead, what I want to invite you guys into um, is to break this passage down with me um, in 10 central statements of Jesus uh, within, as a progression within this teaching and this back-and-forth dialogue that he's had uh, with the Jews. I know that this is like super small in my brain when I made the slide. These TVs were like twice as big, and then I got here, I was like, oh, But, uh, and I'm not tech-savvy enough to fix it last minute, so. I will read them as I go, though. First, I kind of want to give you a a testimony. I grew up in um, colonial New England, uh, in the western Massachusetts, in the Berkshire foothills, a little town of 2,500 people called Williamsburg, uh, Massachusetts, and uh, that is like my heaven on earth, Um, my five generations deep of McAvoy's, my, my, my mother's maiden name was McAvoy, I've been living in the home that I grew up in. Um, and in this little town, uh, in this little uh, farmhouse that I grew up in, uh, my uncle Bill uh, grew up in the bedroom that I grew up in, and uh, his uncle grew up in that bedroom before him, um, and, and so forth. And what's interesting about living in a home with a family legacy like that is like the fingerprints of the generations are all over the home. And like an example of that is that um, my sister, uh, her bedroom used to be my Aunt Dawn's bedroom before her, and like carved into the windowsill in that bedroom is like, I love so-and-so, and and then like scratched them out, and then like I love so-and-so, like scratched them out, and she's like joined all the boys that she ever went crazy for on the windowsill, and so just like a shrine to like all the dudes they ever fell in love with in grade school for like 100 years, right, like in this. And uh, we, we went out in the, in the woods one time, we found like the remains of a tree fort that had been built in like 1960 from, you know, a family member of mine, and we rehabbed that. But my favorite discovery in that home, you're gonna have to bear with me, my throat is giving out a little bit. Um, my favorite discovery was a loose floorboard in my bedroom. Uh, underneath my dresser, slid it over and found that a Massive old floorboard was kind of loose, and I wiggled it free, and I found a cache of a treasure foregone, right? There was a bag of marbles, some army guys, a trophy, and this Bible. You pull it out. I wasn't raised Christian. It was this King James version It seemed like it was old when it was gifted to my uncle who stuck it in this, under this floorboard, and uh, so to me it was ancient. I was maybe nine or ten years old. And I bring this Bible up into my top bunk, stick it under my, under my pillow, and I'm reading it. And, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but, like, Western Massachusetts is super, like, open, like, earthy spirituality is, like, the, probably the, how I would describe the religious scene in, of Western Massachusetts, kind of an earthy ancestral spirituality, like, I believed in, like, fairies and stuff growing up. Like, I did, I did, like, a seance and tried to summon Babe Ruth on Halloween one year, right? Like, this is, like, my upbringing, right? And um, so I, this text was, like, the first thing I'd ever seen in, like, old English. It wasn't a holy book to me, but it was a spiritual book, and it was super neat, and it was found in a hole in my floor, and it was old, and so it was, like, I had, like, as high of a view of the book as you could have without being born again, because it was, like, in my floorboards, Right? And so, uh, reading it, though, I I just want to say to you guys, like, nothing happened. Like, I I, I would read it, and it felt really cool to hold. It might as well have been a book of incantations or or, or something else. It was just a book, and nothing happened when I read it. And and the reason for that is that my, my heart was a heart of stone, right? Now, I mean, also, I was 10, and it was in Old English. But it was because my heart was a heart of stone. And years went on. I was 16, 17 years old. Uh, We had moved out of that town. I could drive, and I took myself to a church, and uh, I was seeking after something, and um, I started to hear The Bible preached, and I started to see Christians, and I started to commune with Christians, and I was attracted to Christians because the way that they lived and the way they interacted with one another was distinctly different from the way that my friend groups interacted with one another, and so I was really first attracted to Christians well before I knew Christ or the God that had informed the way that they were, and so I started branding myself as Christian in order to kind of fit in with that group but again even sitting under the teachings of the bible nothing was happening like nothing was going into me and the first time that a girl wanted to kiss me i traded in christianity for that but i'll never forget when christ got a hold of me the first prayer i ever really prayed to the lord was a shaken fist prayer where i had become aware my my, the scales had been lifted i had become aware that something was wrong with me. That I dwelled in darkness. That I was a fractured sinner. See, on the outside, people kind of knew me to be one thing, but I knew the things that my brain could think. I had spent several years in high school suicidal. In middle school, just like if I if I wasn't talking, I was thinking about death. I bullied my brother. To feel tough, I guess. Wasn't a protector of my sisters. Had hatred in my spirit towards my parents. And I remember just cursing God in this prayer and saying, like, you know, whatever is wrong with me, God, surely you're at fault because you made me, and supposedly you're all powerful, and so whatever I, whatever I am, would be your your problem not mine, right, and just wrote them off. Well, the Lord was doing something in that moment where later that year, He would ransom me from death to life and make me aware that He was making me His child, and when He spoke these things over me, I bought a Bible, and um, I brought it to work. I was working overnights, and in about three months, I read my Bible cover to cover, and it just for the first time came alive to me, Every word was food. Every word was spiritual nourishment, and it did work on me for the first time, right? And now, and this is like a testimony just to you guys from this week, like, I was reading this passage and getting ready to preach it this morning, and I'm like hyped up like I'm watching an action film when I read this because of course every word is true, and of course this is my Jesus, right? This is entirely different than the eight, nine, ten-year-old boy with his mystical book up in his top bunk. This is entirely different than putting on appearances and, and reciting the words in order to look like something. The words have come alive, Well, the truth is, is that I was a glory-seeking liar who walked in darkness, who put myself on the judgment seat, who was deaf to the words of God and dead in my sin until something happened. And that's what Jesus is going to be talking about this morning. You've had it read over you. And in order to spare us some time, I want you guys to follow with me 10 statements that Jesus makes in this passage in order that you can trace the line with me through what he is teaching here, how it applies to the testimony I've just given you and try to help you to see how it really describes your testimony as well if you are found in Christ. The first major claim that Jesus makes in this passage is to be the light of the world. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. He soon after claims that if you knew him, that you would know the Father also. Now this idea of the light of the world has already been covered at length if you've been with Mercy's Door. I encourage you, if you're newer to Mercy's Door, we're not too deep into our sermon series in the Gospel account of John for you to kind of power through it and to really try to catch up to where we are Uh, because there are themes that our author has written to really help us to try to see a really high view of God. And so we already have heard time and time again that we're talking about the light of the world, right? That we're talking about the one who came before all things and who shone light into the darkness and who gives life at the creation story, and at renewal. But Jesus is talking about a kind of light of the world here that talks about rescue. You see, the light in the beginning, the, the light that said, let there be light before sin, is a little bit different than the light of the world that comes after sin, right? Because when you cast light on darkness, once that darkness is inhabited by sinner, what that light does is it exposes sin. It exposes darkness. What was hidden is now revealed. He says that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of what? Of life. You see, church, the first invitation that I need to make this morning as we look at the ten statements of Jesus is that whatever it is that you are keeping in the darkness is pulling you into death. Darkness and death go hand in hand. One of the things I was talking to a friend last night that I've really been talking to Jesus about for this year at Mercy's Door, just to have a moment with you guys, is I was like, you know, I could probably be okay if this year of ministry at Mercy's Door was about nothing other than fostering two things, a culture of deep dependence on prayer, vertical relationship with God, and confession and repentance, that if we as a church were to drag out of the darkness those things that we just really don't believe that the gospel is big enough for, that Jesus is big enough for, that his grace and mercy are big enough to cover, that his blood is sufficient to cover, if we could actually put our fingers on the things that we won't say in gospel community. The thing that we did this at a leadership gathering recently where I opened up a leadership gathering and I said to the leaders of the church. I don't know what to ask. So, hey, what just, here's the thing. What's the thing that if nobody asked you, you wouldn't volunteer it? Can we talk about that? And man, did we. See, this is, the, this is what I want for Mercy's Door this year. We're not talking about a moment in time. We're talking about a culture of taking the things that are in the darkness and dragging them into the light in the faith that the light slays the darkness and it brings dead things to life. See, Jesus claims to be that light and that those who walk with him will have the light of life. And so I want to encourage you this morning, Mercy's Door. Firstly, I know that you're hiding sin. I know you are because I am. All of us struggle to believe that truly all of the corners of our sin, right? Like, well, gosh, I didn't do it. I didn't do anything. But gosh, I'm, you are sinful, right? This, I, like, unless I'm super-duper broken, then I know that your own mind betrays you, that your own flesh betrays you, that you judge yourself based on your best intentions and you judge everybody else based on their actions, that you justify your sin as like, that's not who I really am. I didn't mean it. It's really because of something that happened to me, not so much something I did. It's walking in darkness to make a friend to your sin, to make excuse for your sin, to buddy up to your sin, to try to tame your sin, try to keep it in the room with you. But no, rather than walking in darkness, Jesus says if you walk with him, you will have the light of life. He says that if you knew him, you would know my father also. Here, I won't preach it too hard because we've been, just every week. It seems like he's making this claim, and so you need to hear it. Jesus is God, okay? Jesus is God. Jesus and the Father are one. Over again, Jesus has said every week, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. To know me is to know the Father. To know the Father is to know me. We are one. If you knew me, that you would know him. So Jesus is making a high claim here that to walk with him is to have the light of the world. To walk with him is to have the light of life. And the reason for that is because he and the Father are one. To know him is to know God. And God is the Father of lights from whom every good thing flows. But then he says in in this third statement that his judgment is true and that it is not he alone who judges, but he and the Father who sent me. But just like a second before that, he had said, not that I judge anyone, but even if I do judge, it's not just me who judges, it's me and the Father who judges. And this is like a theme all throughout John, where he's talked about this several times, that the Father has given him alone the authority to judge, and then he defers that authority back to the Father, and he just says, listen, even though I can judge On my own accord, instead, I default to the Father. My judgments are as He would judge. And the Father defaults to me. His judgments are as I would judge. He's claiming unity and oneness with the Father in His judgments and claiming that His judgment is true. If Jesus has the authority to judge, if Jesus and the Father are one, if Jesus is God and God is judge and his judgment is true, then that means that when he looks at you and he says you're dwelling in darkness, you can trust him that he's right. When he calls something evil, when he calls something sin, when he, call, when he says to these folks, you are of your father the devil, he went so far as to say, right? His judgment is true. It's not like a mere suggestion, right? He's talking about the difference between death, and life he gets to define it his judgment is true and for his judgment to come upon us is a horrifying thought if we are standing in our own merit because he has gone to great lengths in this sparring with the jews to describe to them how their righteousness is it it pales in comparison to what they actually need to stand uprightly before him So the first thing that the church needs to remember and to hear is that we walked in darkness, marked by our sin, that we desperately needed light to invade that space and that we were not able to drag ourselves into that light, but that light needed to come for us, and it came in the form of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, one with the Father, that he might pour out his judgment on the earth. He says well, what's his judgment going to be? That fourth statement, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You know, we want to soften this doctrine a bit, I think, because it's so hard to look at that and to believe it. Like, do, like, we don't even want to believe, really, that we're in sin, let alone that we could die in it. But what Jesus is talking about here is he says, to be brought from this death in your sins into new life, into the light of life, is to merely believe that I am he. So my question for the church is, who do we believe that he is? Who do you believe Jesus is as it pertains to you? Is he your advice giver? Is he a great prophet, a great teacher? Is he a good man? Is he God? Is he judge? Because he's declared, and he's claimed to have the right to, that he is the judge, and that he is judged that we will die in our sins unless we believe that he is the Son of Man, that he is one with the Father. But it's not just enough to believe that, you know, his Satan knows who Jesus is. He can correctly articulate who Christ is. So we're certainly not talking about an academic ascending to some theological truths, right? We're talking about a knowing that sounds like tasting and seeing, relational indwelling. Because in this fifth statement, what Jesus says is that after you've lifted up the Son of Man, he means crucify him, you will know that I am he. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And when you've crucified me, you will know that I am he. So Jesus is talking to folks that he knows that these very people that he's talking to are going to be the ones who will crucify him. He says, when you have crucified me, you will know it was me. And this literally happens, like, as soon as he breathes his last, like, there's the first post-crucifixion convert. He's like, surely this was the Son of God. One minute too late, you would think, right? Unless he can raise from the dead, and if he can raise from the dead, maybe he can raise you from the dead, right? Some of this, I think, just feels like basic Christian doctrine to us sometimes, until you actually look at your life. Maybe it's not so basic, right? I mean guys, we've been walking together, like, the reason why I hype gospel communities so much here is that we would really know one another, right? But like this is like the two things that we see most common commonly in relationship is that we fail to believe the gospel over the corners of our actual life, which is why we just like hit on this every single week, is that like we don't really believe this. How do we know whether or not we're believing it? Well, when we sin, where do we run? If we run to God, then this is evidence that we are believing the gospel. If we run away from Him, then we're believing a a false gospel of righteousness by good works or by hiding, right? And so when we run to darkness, when we fail, when we run to darkness, when we sin, we are choosing to continue to dwell apart from the sun, apart from the light of life. But He says, if you knew me, you'd know my Father. He's judged that you will die in your sins unless you believe that I am He. And if you believe that I am He, then you'll know that I am the one who has the light of life. You know, sometimes I think that we see Him lifted up. We see Him crucified. We see Him give up His life. We see Him resurrected. And that helps us to agree that He's God. But we still struggle to believe that if we abide in Him, then the truth will set us free. This is... This is the sixth statement that he makes. You see, I just see this, these two types of slavery within the church. Like, I know that we'll see it in the world. Like, I know why we need, like, we need to go to our unreached neighbors and to give them the gospel because we see people who have never heard this, people who don't know Jesus, people who are truly enslaved to either good works of, 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 of false righteousness or just guilt, shame, and condemnation for all the things that they know they're not right? And we just want to give them this message of life. But it doesn't just exist out there. It exists right in here. Like, as I walk with you guys, I know that you're like me, and that we continually return to this, this heart posture, this, this spiritual lowness of guilt, shame, and condemnation that we then try to medicate with works of righteousness and with good deeds, that we try to clean ourselves up to become better than we are, or at least to pretend better than we are, that we're better than we are, and to go into hiding, and to act like this is not a a litmus test to whether or not we are believing the gospel, and that we don't seek to go deeper with this before we would feign to just bring that to somebody else. Listen, the world doesn't need the message that we're going to be carrying to them if we're not believing it for ourselves. It starts here, And so that's why at my prayer for Mercy's Door, this, and this is not like an indictment on Mercy's Door. I'm talking about like the church, like for the global church forever. Like this is the work of every church is to believe the gospel more fully together before we would pretend to carry it out in its fullness to other folks, right? That we would be believing it for ourselves together, not in a once and for all way as if we arrive, but in a daily relational communal way. I know whether or not you are believing the gospel based on whether or not you volunteer information to me that is disgusting, right? Like if you're talking about the things that you hate most about you, if you're talking about the things you are most ashamed of, if you are confessing the things that that really plague your spirit, the things that you just wish that you could be washed white as snow from, I know that you're doing that because you are believing that you have been, But if you don't believe that you have been, if you don't believe that you have been thoroughly washed by the blood of Christ and that before your father you stand purified by his life, death, and resurrection, then you must hide. You must lie. And so you will. So it's not just enough to show up at gospel community because if you've been gathering in gospel community for a year or two years and no one really knows you, and you just seem like somebody who's got it all together, you're not believing the gospel. I know you're not. I know you're not because that's me. I can go years without talking about the stuff I really need to be talking about if you'd let me. So don't let me. Because Jesus promises, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Whoever is of God hears the words of God, he claims. This is where I was going with my introductory story. If you're of God, you'll hear his words. If you're not of God, you won't. And that's why, like, as far as it goes with, like, evangelism or or hitting up our neighbors with the gospel, right? Like, I just, generally speaking, am not an apologetics guy. I think that there's place for them. But people cannot ascend academically to the truths of the gospel, right? Like, the, like these words jump off the page in joy as the Holy Spirit communes with your spirit when you are brought from, from, from death to life, right? Like academically ascending to truth uh, based on a good argument isn't the same thing as spiritual regeneration and taking a heart of stone and making it a heart of flesh. And that doesn't happen based on so much apologetics as the Holy Spirit entering into the picture and just taking dead folks... And bringing them to life, right? And that happens when we preach the gospel. And so a lot of times what I think kind of cripples the church in in taking this good news and bringing it to other people is we don't really know how to present it in a way that we can really win a sparring match with people who might have a good challenge against it or whatever. And the truth is it starts with because we don't really believe it for ourselves, and so it's not just a natural overflowing of talking about what we know because we've tasted and seen it ourselves. That's just what we do, right? Like you don't strategize ahead of time what you're going to say when you talk about the great steak that you had last night, right? You're just going to start talking about it because it was a great steak, and you know it was a great steak because you tasted it, and you want other people to taste it too, and so you just, like, offer it to them. You should try this, and if they're like, man, that looks terrible, and you're stupid. You're like, ah, more for me, right? You don't go online, like, look up all of the ingredients and stuff so you can, like, list them off for the person, try to make a compelling case, right? You will share what you have tasted and found to be satisfying. And if you are of God, you will hear those words. And if you abide in those words, you are truly his disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And of course, they challenge him in this passage, and they say, like, well, we've never been slaves. I don't really know what you're talking about. And he talks about how the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does Remain in the house forever. And this is like our great assurance, right? That your sin, which seems to cling so tightly, which you've already received forgiveness for in Christ, right? That the Father looks at you today and He declares you spotless because a payment has been made on your behalf in Christ Jesus, right? Like that's true. But you feel like I'm lying to you because you're like, yeah, but I still sin. And you're like, I thought freedom would mean like I don't sin anymore. You can't just say someone something if I know it's not true. Like, you can't be like, Pastor Adam, you are so tall. My love, you say so. It's pride. Do you know what makes something true? that God says it's true? Do you know what makes something true? That God says it's true. He doesn't require that you can ascend to understanding or agreement with it. When he says something's true, it's true. It's done. He is truth, he is light, and when he speaks, life springs forth. Everything was created by the word of his power. When he says something is, it is. And when he says something's not, it's not. And so when he says something, and you're like, I don't see it, then the problem's with you, not with him. From his vantage point, it's already done. And his vantage point's the only one that matters. Of course, the question is, well, will we ever shed our sin permanently, where it's not just true from his eternal perspective, but I experience it as true? And the answer is, yeah, yeah. Not only in a given moment when the Spirit has victory in you, where where once you were a slave to your sin nature and you could not do anything pleasing to God because you were utterly dead in the trespasses in which you once walked, the Spirit alive in you is able in a moment on this side of eternity to make you obedient to God because the Spirit within you, His Spirit within you, wants only ever to do the will of the Father, which means that in a given moment, you can be perfect. That's just, that's just true. But every other moment, so you, like, we've talked about this before at Mercy's Door. It's probably been a few years, though, right? A lot of times we think that sanctification becoming conformed to the image of Christ kind of looks like this, if you were to put it on a graph. I don't know if I'm going to my left or your, your left or your right here. But, like, an upward trajectory, right? That, like, just, like, this is time and this is holiness. And just the more time that I walk with the Lord, the more holy I become. And that's sanctification, right? And that's stupid because I know you. And you know me. Sanctification isn't a function of time. In a moment, the Holy Spirit wins or your flesh wins. You sin or you perfectly obey. And it looks more like this, right? Where in the moment, the Holy Spirit through you glorifies the Father, glorifies the Son, does exactly what it is. And this is like every time that you like this is what was getting me pumped when i was preparing for this i seem super casual i'm like i've been so sick this week i didn't even think i was going to be up here this morning and so like, i just like this is what you get but what got me so pumped is i'm like the fact that i am reading this and it's doing anything is my proof that the Spirit is testifying to my spirit that I am a son of God. The fact that these words mean anything to you is proof that you are walking as a child, not as an an outsider walking in darkness, right? When you read it and then do it, well, that's the Spirit, like, bearing the goodness of God in the world, right? That's Him achieving His good purposes in creation through you, a broken vessel. And then sometimes you sin. So, Until one day, at Christ's return, or until you join Him, you just flatline that perfect holiness. And you will shed your sin like a snake sheds its skin and never again, whether it'll be suffering or mourning or death or sin of any kind. First thing, the big thing that he claims there in, in the eighth statement is, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Of course, they freak out about that because they're like, Abraham died, the prophets died, who do you claim to be? They're like, God. I claim to be God. Never see death. The thing is, he's already told us that we are walking in darkness and death, right? He doesn't say, when he says that we will die in our sins if we don't believe in him, He's not saying, like, saying you are dead in your sins, and you will die in that state. Like a double death. Right? Like, you're not, like, on the scales, and then at death the judgment is made. Sinner, not sinner. You are a sinner. That's already true. And as a sinner, you are dead, even as you live. In your sin until something happens for you so you will live in the spirit now and continue to live in the spirit forever or you are dead in your sin now and you will continue to be dead in your sin forever unless something changes and that something that changes is that we walk with the light of life and believe that he and the father are one that he is the savior lifted up for us Ninth thing he claims is that he doesn't seek his own glory, but there's one who seeks it and that he's the judge. This was central and is central to my understanding of what it means to walk with Jesus. Something that I want for us as a culture at Mercy's Door to believe that everything that the Father is doing in his church, everything he's doing in you, is unto the glory of the Son. What he's about, what your Father in heaven is about, is glorifying Jesus. You know, you know how, how you can be sure that he's going to have victory in you? It's because he's, the God the Father's not going to withhold any glory from Jesus. As much as he's going to do it for your joy, and we say this at Mercy's Door again and again, to the, we exist to the glory of our King for the joy of his people, to the glory of our King for the joy of his people. This is my email signature at Mercy's Door. This is like the drumbeat of my life, is that we exist to the glory of our King for the joy of His people. But we, we, we focus on the joy piece more than the glory piece, and we find that we have less joy, don't we? Because like, the joy flows out of glorifying Christ. The most selfish thing that you can do in the pursuit of your joy is seek to glorify Jesus. That's the path to joy, And Jesus says he's not seeking after his own glory. He makes so little defense for himself, right? He says there's one who seeks it, and he's the judge. And I'm so grateful, and you ought to be too, that God the Father, the judge, seeks the glory of the Son. Because it is out of his seeking for the glory of the Son that he pours out the Holy Spirit on a church in order that he can offer to the Son a remnant, a people, ransomed from darkness, ransomed from sin and death, ransomed from the power of the slavery of sin in your life. The reason why you are plucked out and offered to the Son is in order that the Father could glorify him. You are the Father's love offering to his Son. And the Father only gives the most precious and beautiful things to His Son. He will purify you. He will conform you to His image. He will eradicate sin from every corner of your heart and of the world on that final day and moment by moment as you walk with Him. Lastly, the big claim the 10th verse, verse, the, the point up there is before Abraham was, I am. I kind of want to read this one more directly right from the text. This is starting in uh, chapter 8, verse 52. The Jews said to him, we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets died, Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He's our God. But you've not known him, and I do. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him. Guys, they have held Jesus up in this passage, and we do the same in our cultures doing it also. They hold Jesus up against who we need him to be, who we expect him to be. He surely can't be greater than Abraham. He surely can't be greater than the prophets. We're willing to let him be on equal footing with him, even in our, in our best sinful moments, right? But he can't be I am. He says that Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and that he saw it and was glad. Jesus is, Jesus is telling us about Abraham's response when he saw him. That when Abraham died, he didn't die that when Abraham died in this life, that by his faith, which is counted to him as righteousness, that he beheld the glory of the Son, that he rejoiced to one day see. Jesus said, let me tell you about the time I met Abraham. He rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the folks are like, oh, when did you meet Abraham? Jesus, 33-year-old Jesus. Well, before he even was. I am. I am, of course, being the very name of God that he gave to Moses at the burning bush when he said, tell me your name. Not at the burning bush. He says, tell me your name. He says, I am that I am. And you're like, I don't know if that's what he meant. The Jews picked up stones to throw at him. So many words are spoken in this passage and they're all saying the same thing. He's God, we're not. He's good, we're not. He's light, we're darkness. He's justice, we're injustice. He's life, we're death. This is the drumbeat of Jesus' speech here. And to the very people who will crucify him, he says, when you see me lifted up, you will know and if you believe, this is the out, this is the door, this is the mercy's door that is open. It's why we named the church this, right? That in this, in this time before the return, the, the invitation remains to enter in, to come into the light, to let it pierce the darkness, to forsake your sin, to renounce your sin, to repent, to confess, to walk with Jesus that we might no longer walk with darkness, and to receive forgiveness for our sin, that we might walk with him as sons, perfected, that we might be opened to know his word, and that we might share it with others. This is the chief end of the church. It's why we're not with him. Up and out. like it's why it's why we're, we're still here. You know, like the like Jesus said to the demoniac and the decapitalists. He saves him, casts out demons, saves him, and he just wants to go with him. He says, No, you must remain and tell all your friends and family, right? Like he's still doing it. This is the great hope. Like we're still here because he's still doing it. Like he's not done saving. Like he's just he he wants to he wants to resuscitate more dead people. He wants to bring more people who are dwelling in darkness into the light. But he's not done with you either. And so we're still here in order that we might more fully walk with him and invite others to the party. I just want to call on us this morning as I conclude to respond to this, guys. I mean, I've got a hundred charges that I want to make on myself and I want to make on you when I hear statements like this, but I just want to stick to the two the one that just burdens my heart, the one that keeps me up at night, the one that's filling my prayers, the one that I see when I look out at the future of mercy's door, that when Jesus says these things, if we get nothing from it other than that, he is good and we can bring our stuff to him. He, you can bring your stuff to him, like just drag it out and put it in front of him because he casts light on it and puts death to death and brings us into new life. Believe that more fully for you. That's my charge this morning. Believe it more fully for you. Believe it with one another and then the rest is going to happen. Would you pray with that, Pr- pray for that with me this morning, for me, for us, and then labor with us, labor with me together toward that end in gospel community. Let's pray.